hello and welcome to Misbehave, the podcast where we explore human behavior in a business context. Season two of Misbehave is all about uncovering behavioral patterns which create success in life and business. We're joined by highly driven, accomplished individuals to assess their behavioral patterns and dive into how behaviors have influenced their journey. This episode features Lucy Batley, AI expert and founder of Traction Industries. In our conversation, we cover the future of AI and how to use it for maximum impact in your business, whilst also talking through the life lessons from running multiple businesses, the journey of self-discovery and the role of purpose and focus. Well, welcome, Lucy. We are so excited that you are here. I think let's kick off with you're a graphic designer by trade. I am a graphic designer by trade. Mm-hmm. How did you become the owner of a tech company? <laughs> <laughs> so a strap line is I'm a designer by trade and a, I own a tech company by accident. Good question. So yes, I was qualified as a graphic designer, specialised in branding, but I've always worked in digital design from, I will say, from the dawn of the internet because I'm so <laughs> old. So yeah, I started off designing websites for music industry and my claim to fame was designing the CD-ROM interface for Barclays Bank to launch the Euro into Barclays um, Small Business Bank division, which oh, was wow. quite massive. Yeah, but that shows you how old I am. So designed interfaces, and we didn't used to call them user experience. It was customer journeys, but same thing. So I've been doing that nearly all of my career, and then eventually developed in designing and developing tech products. So, yeah, my company now called Traction, we design anything. We're completely tech agnostic. I'll go and do the strategic bit and find out what the business needs are and what the business case is, because normally it's a problem that the company's trying to solve. And then we'll design a bit of technical magic to help um, string everything together. Yeah, I know it's interesting, isn't it? Because we talked a little bit about the fact that you end up becoming almost the translator, the interpreter between sort of... Geek speak. Yeah, geek speak. (laughs) Um, Tell us a bit about that because you operate on a consortium model. How do you do that? So, yeah, two things with that. Yes, a consortium model which was born out of COVID where... So my old company, we had a team of designers and a team of techies, coders. And interestingly, when we went into the first lockdown, the coders all excelled because they love sitting and I don't generalise, but geeky coders like to sit in dark rooms and eat pizza and not talk to anybody. And they all, the productivity level went up massively. The design team spectacularly felt the bits because we're all emotional creatures that wear our hearts on our sleeves. So yeah, that was interesting. But also COVID meant that it opened up the whole global workspace in terms of finding specialist tech people. So the consortium model is born out of that. I've got a good dozen to 20 regional partners that I work with all the time. Then we bring very, very specialist tech teams in. They can be based all over the place. So that's how that works. Yeah, so I've worked with techies for years and years and years, and they're quite, they are an odd breed. And I know they won't mind me saying that. I call them either the big brain T file heads or the geeks. But um, yeah, I've found that because I'm a visual person, to make myself understand what the techies are talking about, and this is like really high level, I'll draw little diagrams and say, look, have I understood this properly? And then I realised that the diagrams are actually really useful to translate what they were doing to the clients as well. So I'm almost kind of the middleman go between between clients who've got a business need and technical person who can deliver on that. And I think that's so needed. I mean, we obviously work with a lot of tech companies, but we're building a tech product ourselves. And I, I think, yeah. Brilliant. And I think you can get into that 
what exactly does that mean? Or you get to the end of a project and what you've got in your head as the end customer or as the visual person is not the same as what the tech guys had. And it's almost just that lost in translation thing. And I think to have that middle person who can actually go, that's what that means and that's what you'll get is so valuable. Everything we do is bespoke and because you're developing new technologies and we're using literally bleeding edge technology in terms of artificial intelligence and machine learning that you don't know what you don't know and quite often clients will have a rough idea of what they want to build or they've, they've got a project or a platform that, or an app that they want to build but they don't know how that plays out in terms of visualising it or going through the project and it's classic what you're saying that techies will go off. The best way somebody described it to me is if you ask a techie to design um, a cup of tea, they'll design the cup of tea and the teapot and the milk carton to go in as well. They need a very specific guide to it. So it's that understanding the whole project kind of from a bird's eye view and then bringing all the teams together that's what I'm good at in terms of bringing different people together and getting them to work together in different project teams and I think that plays really nicely into this you've got this really interesting balance between from a working preference perspective you prefer to work independently yeah so on your own section and obviously with the business you've now set up there's you but then you've built this consortium of people around you because you have a massive motivation almost one of the highest motivation scores we've seen for affiliation which is people taking the box (laughs) (laughs) so it's about that like bringing people together and people working together and feeling a sense of belonging and this sort of community and that's kind of what you're describing how do you balance that almost like want for independent working time and independent projects and almost just that real driver and motivation for being around people and feeling that sense of community do you know what I was on the way here I was thinking about this because I quite often say that the consortium model works well because everybody's autonomous and everyone's pointing in the same direction that you get better results out of them which I do think is true and the joke is I say if they don't deliver they don't get paid if they don't deliver and we don't have a good relationship I don't work with them again and it's easy and you'll know this from payroll it's easier to not work with a small company or a freelancer than it is with an employee and because everything we do is bespoke and because it's project model that works really well we had ups and downs in my old company where you'd have feast or famine where you were working really really against the clock and then you'd have a period where nothing's happening whereas if I'm buying and and selling projects it works much better that said I was thinking this morning that it isn't that much different having a team you've got the same responsibilities in terms of motivating people I've always been very self-motivated that's just the way I'm my DNA but yeah it's no different to having employees it's just it's different way of contracting them and bringing the work in the big benefit in tech is that it's project based so you don't have to lay people on it's quite common with big tech companies that they'll get big projects in and then they'll have a dry period and they'll have to lay off loads of staff which is really tough to do so it gets around that solve so it swings and roundabouts as with anything in business isn't it but yeah, no, it suits me. But yes, you have to be massively motivated to just go out and get the work in and project manage all the teams as well. Yeah, which plays to your goal focus, your goal orientated. So that's definitely something like having a goal and knowing where you're going. And that big picture piece, I think, being able to visualise the end piece. But often when people are visionaries like yourself, where they can see the strategy, they can see the end goal, they often find it difficult to then translate that into the detail that your your tech team will need how do you manage to overcome that? that that's a communication 
bit, which is what I'm good at in terms of the branding piece. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I did a talk the other week in Sheffield about AI and in preparation for that, I was thinking how, because I'm, I'm very upfront when I go into companies and I say, look, I'm a designer, I'm not a techie, but I understand how artificial intelligence works and I can do that bigger strategic piece over the top of it. But I was trying to think of why I particularly got into artificial intelligence and tech and design. And basically, I'm just completely anal in terms of I'm very, very organised and I have to have everything in its place. And that makes me a very good project manager. So it's about just being super duper organised, but also having those communication skills to play on because you'll know this, different people work with different strengths and different motivations. So it's being able to motivate people to do the project, but also keep an eye on everything that's going on and politely push <laughs> them along or kick them up the bum when needed. But that's where your communication skills come. I've got no qualms about telling somebody that they're doing something wrong as long as you do it in a right, constructive way. Art of persuasion. The art of persuasion. <laughs> really what you've just described there, your high choices, which means that you just jump and juggle lots of different things fairly easily. And that's one thing when we are talking to clients and they're talking about recruiting project managers, our question usually is, how many projects do they have to juggle at one time? Because if you're recruiting a project manager for, say, a construction company and they do a £12 million project that lasts yeah. five years, you probably want them to be more process-oriented. But if they're managing multiple projects, juggling at any one time, you're going to want that ability to juggle and jump. And that's often what we see in project managers that aren't that great, is when they're too procedural or they can't do the jump and the transition. So I think that's interesting. We've got something in common in the fact that we all are interested and slightly fascinated by human behaviour. What does behaviour mean to you? Oh, my first point of calling that would be a code of conduct, I suppose, and the way you comport yourself. This is where I've fallen down in the I'm probably too trusting of people because I always, I always treat people how I'd want to be treat myself. And I, I quite often jump into things with various I've got to be careful what I say jump into different things with different people but uh, and it doesn't this is also called misbehaviour so you don't have to be that careful (laughs) (laughs) yeah I am impulsive and I do rush into things and I'm one of the things I'm doing at the moment is trying to pull myself back and to be more judgmental at the beginning but I suppose it links to AI I know that obviously this is a place that you're really finding your strength and pushing forward and kind of paving the way particularly for women in, in, in the AI sort of industry well in tech in general one of my personal remit is that I want to get more women into tech are really, really badly represented. I mean, I think it's about what is less than one-fifth in the tech industry are women. Mm-hmm. So part of my personal goal is to say, look, you don't have to be a coder, you can be a designer as long as you use your design thinking and your creative mind in the tech. It doesn't matter what industry it is. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, the human behaviour piece of AI is something that we've been talking quite a bit about, and particularly in relation to our tech product and the, the behavioural map that you've took, and looking at how in the future we potentially can use AI in analysing the data yeah. and, and pulling the data out in years to come when we've we've got, you know, 
millions of pieces of data about human behavior, what can we then do with that? Give us a bit of an insight into how you're working with businesses on that. So really good point is about data. And one of the jokes I have at the minute is I keep getting a lot because I'm doing a big profile piece on social media at the moment. And I'm getting a lot of interest from it, particularly CEOs going, oh, I love what you're doing in AI. Can you come and sprinkle some AI dust on my company? And, I, and my response <laughs> is always, it's not always appropriate to every company because you need good quality and large amounts of data. So I'll say, look, you've got new data and they'll go, I've got loads of data. And I'm like, show me your data. And they'll get a rusty old Rolodex out the bottom of the drawer. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not that's not relevant. So there's two different bits to AI. There's what's called the generative AI, which is the chat GPTs and the image creations for doing adverts and things like that, which will become mainstream tools that everyone's going to use. So we made a very strategic decision to steer away from them and not build our own tools. So we'll build other bespoke tools using AI tools, but we'll go in and do the strategic bit at the beginning and work out where um, there's 7,000 AI tools have come out since January. Wow. So navigating that is quite difficult and you've got to know what you're doing and it's still highly, highly specialised. So it's about not reinvent the wheel, but going in. It's digital transformation, basically, but looking at what companies are using, where AI tools can replace that. But then no, nine times out of ten, building either bespoke product or some sort of bespoke bridge or API that will link different parts of the businesses together. But essentially, it's about business improvements and efficiencies. My mantra is it's a tool, it's a tool, it's a tool. Where can that help speed up your decision-making processes by having those decisions being data-informed? Mm. I think that's really interesting because we talk a lot about we do the behavioural work we do in order to influence performance and productivity. So it's not this thing of like, let's just do your profile because as a team building exercise, it's just nice to know about each other. It's like, well, no, how do you use that in your organization to understand about what your people need to perform at their best? And then how do we look at how we close gaps of productivity by using that data and that intelligence? And it sounds like you're doing similar things in a different space. Give us some examples, because I think the thing that we hear from business owners is like, how do I use AI or what problems can it solve? Can you give us some examples of some of the problems you're solving? So it's a lot of the stuff we're doing is it's taking Excel spreadsheets, manually inputted data and just speeding that process up. So it can be quite basic. People think that they've got to have quite a sort of technical presence before they do it. It's interesting what you're doing in behaviour, because one of the things I say, artificial intelligence has become a bit of a catch all term for anything that's non-human. And artificial general intelligence is where the sentient emotional robots. I don't know if you classify, you've asked me my definition of behaviour, does that link with emotions? So what the golden egg that all the researchers are trying to develop now is that emotional robot that'll have human feelings and be sentient. And it'll be interesting to see how that develops and particularly in terms of HR and the sort of work that you do, because you will be able to analyse different behaviours. And it's really interesting you say that because we did a little game with ChatGBT the other day (laughs) and we put in an example of a difficult conversation and it gave us the almost a text of what to say to this person, fictitious person. And it, I mean, it was pretty good. The bit that was really interesting that it missed out was almost this bit that we would always say, right, if you're going to have a difficult conversation with somebody, what are the, figure out what they're motivated by and have the conversation in line with that. So if they're motivated 
towards people, as an example, like with yours, you'd have the difficult conversation. You'd share the impact that your behaviour was having on the people. Whereas if someone's achievement motivated, you might share the impact of their behaviour on them achieving in the business or their career growth. And that's the bit that feels like it's missing Mm. currently. It's still quite generic. Yeah, it is generic. But it's that that's fascinating around that piece of that it's emotional lang- intelligence it's language piece will come. yeah so it's chat gpt is a large language model so it's based so there's nlp which is natural language processing which is the lingua computation and linguistics come together which is why you're putting a dialogue yeah you're yeah. putting a dialogue in and it, it's spitting it out and it's getting better and better and better but yes we're not quite at the point of having full answers and what I say is it's a tool you need to have that judgment you've got to have the skills and experience to make to sure to, that. to be able to do that yeah. and, and make that judgment call on it it will get better over time the one that blew my mind off was uh, it's called character AI where they've given parameters to the AI so it's using open AI which is what ChatGPT is based on but they've given characteristics to these different people so I chose Socrates as an example and he was quite grumpy I was taking the mick out of him to test it and he started being quite grumpy and I went you're being a bit grumpy Socrates and he said yes I'm a, I'm a known curmudgeon from the whenever he was around and I, I didn't know that so I googled it and he was known to be really grumpy so that's interesting in that they've taken a set of parameters because the models work on finding patterns and patterns in language so they've obviously fed the model with everything that Socrates ever done but then they've made him grumpy which I think is like really <laughs> so clever yeah so he's grumpy Henry VIII's belligerent Michael Jackson's just weird and <laughs> etc etc you have different characters but that was a real kind of whoa they start to put different behaviours and parameters into it it's getting more sophisticated it isn't is it? Getting and, and our tool based on the NLP stuff but it's then us putting it in the context of business and then yeah. how we yeah. how we then help people understand it's not just understanding about them it's understanding about the person that they're going to then have a conversation with talking about difficult conversations (laughs) and being open to communication I mean you're kind of known for someone who talks openly about having your own opinion anybody who follows Lucy on LinkedIn there's some really really interesting conversations and debates I think that you lead on which is great you've talked quite openly about the challenges of being a woman in your industry how does someone who, you know, you drive and change in that space, which is fantastic. What are some of the challenges you've had to navigate through? Yes, going back to what you said originally, I am known to be very direct, is the polite term, forthright. I'm always the one that asks the question that nobody else in the room wants to ask. But now that's just mainly my characteristic in terms of I like getting straight at the point of stuff, but more that I'm very, very curious and I just am. Um, probably quite curious about what I'm asking people in terms of being a woman and being more forthright that's definitely come with age and probably only within the last year or so since I hit a certain milestone in age I just got to the point where I was like I just don't give a monkeys if I offend people and I am in a I am in a lucky position that I'm an independent business so I don't work for big corporates so I can say what I like but yeah I like being a little bit provocative and starting debates and getting people talking about things etc. Yeah but it's not about just having your say and it being shut down like it's definitely more about stimulating debate yeah. and being curious yeah. about different yeah. things. It's curiosity. Yeah, it's for sure. Cu- yeah it, being the d- design background I was just massively curious 
and just wanting to test different things out and that's what communication is about really isn't it you know you've got a high piece of difference and what that means is like you just love change and stimulating conversation around change that's happened because I get bored I get bored really quickly so listen you're in good company for that one (laughs) we're having to rein back the chasing of the shiny things right now so for example I wasn't particularly ever good at designing logos because you need loads and loads of patience you have to keep doing them over and over and over I can spot it but I would get absolutely bored senseless which is why I yeah I'm much more about big ideas and looking at the kind of bigger the, I hate blue sky thinking but the bigger piece the bigger strategic piece what do you think is the difference in you know we've talked about this more women in a tech yeah. space what do you think are the things that need to happen I think it's a numbers game. I just think it's one of those that stem subjects. It's not particularly glamorous, but I would argue I think tech's really sexy as far as I'm concerned. I think, you know, all the Apple stuff, everyone wants Apple. And for years, we always had a joke that clients would come in and say, oh, make us look like Apple because they're the <laughs> end all and be all. I think they're really exciting companies. And as I said before, my key message is that you don't have to be a techie to work in the tech industry, which I think is a really important message. And the only way we're going to get inside changes by it being that leadership role model piece, which is why I want to get my face out there. Interestingly, when I started doing the LinkedIn stuff, I said my goal was to be recognised as the AI expert in the Northeast, but specifically as a woman. And I've been challenged on that by men and women saying, why does it need to be that you're a woman? Can't you just be the tech expert in the Northeast? And I'm like, no, because I want to represent my gender and promote that it's a good industry to get into. And I think that's such an interesting thing, isn't it? Because we get challenged on that, that we're quite open around what we do on the behavioural side is non-gender specific. But, you know, we started a brand for women in leadership and we've definitely been challenged on, like, why does it have to be women yeah. in leadership? And it's like, because that's where we've got a gap. Like, yeah. we're talking about where do we want to inspire change? And to inspire change, you've got to do something different. I remember this analogy someone told me, and I was like, that's the best analogy ever. And it's like, he was talking about watching a football game and imagine that you're standing behind a fence and you've got one person that's six foot and one person that's five foot. The six foot person can see over the fence, the five foot person can't. So should we give them a step up to enable them to see? Well, yeah, like that just makes sense. And actually it's not about, oh, well, he's got a step and I don't. Yeah, but you can see. So you don't need the step (laughs) You know, it's that. I think that's really interesting around that role model piece. I it's think definitely role mo- It's about role models for me. And there's not enough women that you can see visibly. It's underrepresented. And I think the North East underrepresented. Yeah. For example, there's Rishi Sunak. He's been very cunning and well clever in terms of he's very much aligned himself with tech. And he's got the Global AI Safe Summit is happening at Bletchley Park on the 1st and 2nd of November. So that's where Alan Turin invented the Enigma Code. And nobody knows about it. We're doing an event on this Friday to help promote the Northeast and to get the voices of the Northeast heard. And it's just been so badly discussed or recognised. Just nobody knows anything about it. Not in terms of our event, but the whole the whole thing in yeah. in general. And we're having loads of discussions at the moment about the tech industry in the Northeast is sick of people saying we just don't shout loud enough. We need to position ourselves on the map. And someone said to me, "But Silicon Valley didn't become 
famous because it was Silicon Valley, which is just a place. Mm-hmm. It became famous because there was a big concentration of tech then that the tech should speak for itself. But I still feel like we're the left out northerners. Anything above the Watford Gap gets forgotten about. It's just trying to get the noise. I like making a bit of noise. And if we can get a few people listening to that, then that's brilliant as far as I'm concerned. Not for sure. And that's one of the reasons we do the podcast is to raise profile in areas that we find particularly interesting, you know. Tell us a little bit about your journey of getting here. We've kind of spoke about the current, but what's been sort of some of the highlights of your journey to date? Certainly set up my own business. When I've said this before, I never particularly wanted to set up my own business. So in, in my 20s, I was a very good designer. And everyone's like, you must set up your own business. I just didn't have the confidence to do that. So doing that, I was thinking in my late 20s when I set my first business up, that was kind of... Uh, I've reflected on that loads recently because it's, it wasn't something that I chose. It was almost that I fell into. And I just I can't ever see myself working for somebody ever again. That It's that independence piece. It's being able to do what you want and work whatever hours that you want and be completely autonomous. That's my drive, I think, more than anything. So probably, yeah, setting up my first company is kind of bit in terms of achievement. But yeah, it's be you've got you've got to adapt as well. So I used to do a lot of video work and that came in and out of fashion. Branding came in and out of fashion. It get the market gets swamped. I know that we're in at the moment with AI is a really good example where we're in the flurry of there's thousands and thousands of things coming out and it will flatline. So I was keen personally to make sure that I was at the forefront of that because I could see it coming. I can tell you lots of low lights, but let's not go there in terms of (laughs) the difficult journey. But often with those failures comes growth, you know, and you talked about that challenge sort of pre and post COVID, like going through that and but coming out and look at what you're doing now. Sometimes you've got to almost feel the discomfort and some people call it failures, but it's it's I suppose it's areas that maybe didn't go to plan. They're often your biggest growth points. After the fact. Yeah, it is after the fact. Because I, I remember seeing loads of speeches where, and particularly Americans say, you have to fail. You have to fail before you can be successful. And I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. not convinced by that. And then I haven't had any failures, but had some very difficult periods. And you learn, you've just got to... The trick of being a good business person is being resilient. And you, you have very negative things happen. You know, cash flow goes up and down like a skyrocket. You've just got to be really... Have the balls to keep going on and the resilience to just keep keep going forward keep going forward and if something negative happens pick yourself up and brush yourself down and crack on with it and that's what I've been good at is just crack on with it friends of mine joke and say oh you're the queen of bounce back because I'm <laughs> constantly reinventing myself and yeah and a friend of mine was concerned that reinvent myself as AI could be a negative that I'm just jumping on the next thing and I said no I'm it's something that I'm very really passionate about yeah. and that I'm really interested in so I think that that's a, having a, that sense of purpose has been really, really positive for me. The thing that I've learned is that it's about having focus. And it sounds really, really obvious. And we used to go in and when we're talking to companies, particularly about branding, it's like, what's your end goal? And then work backwards from that. And everyone's a bit wishy-washy about it. But having lost my focus and going off on a tangent and get myself into a pickle. And for me, one of the really, really key important things that I've learned, particularly over the last three years, which have been really tough, is that you've got to have a really clear focus about what you want. That focus piece, we talk a lot about that and it's yeah. definitely ingrained in all the leadership it's work really we do. It's really hard for people. That, like, quite often, if you, we've had coaches in the past and they say, what do you want? 
And I just want to make enough money to go on holiday and have some nice shoes. It's like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Just buy some more black like clothes. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Lucy's known for always wearing black, but she's always immaculately dressed, but always in black. <laughs> yeah, but it's uh, yeah, it's a really hard question to answer. What do you want? What do you want in life? And you know, you'll have personal goals, but for me, certainly in the last year, the AI has given me a massive focus on what I. something that I'm very very passionate about and something that I I really want we do this thing when we do some of our leadership training we get people to think forward so their big vision first but we sometimes make them think about like even exit and whether that exit is staying in the business but just generate enough income and wealth as they go through that period in the business or whether they actually want to grow the business to sell and then we get them to work back and it feels counterintuitive but actually it's so yeah. useful oh, yeah. because you just don't press pause and think about that stuff you enough know, because you're in the day-to-day. We, we, in my old company we were really guilty of not looking at the business and just being like little hamsters rushing around just firefighting on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and I know you do that. It's really, really important really important you've got to step away from the the first time I properly did that was when I was on maternity leave I had a few months off and it was just that different perspective bit going oh right okay this is what's going on you've got to have those breathing spaces and they're really really hard to do when you've got your own business because you don't feel like you can take the time off for sure what's the difference for you now being a sole founder to co-founding a business that's a good question I'll put that down to confidence and women particularly struggle with their confidence but I always felt that I needed a almost a business partner as that crutch and there's the practical necessity in the what if I'm sick or what someone when I'm on holiday somebody needs to pick up the pieces and it's not about having business partners that because everyone thinks I'm really feisty and don't watch out for Lucy Batley like I'm the school bully because I misbehave and that I'm like I'm outspoken outspoken and you know and I get negative comments about that and I think I'm really fair so I think the business partners that I've had that hasn't worked out it's just actually if if I look back and I'm really honest it's about lack of focus it's where I haven't been aligned with what the other person's trying to trying to do or we've been aligned and then circumstances change and you go off on different tangents which happens right which happens Mm -hmm. and people's circumstances change and people want different things so yeah it's back to that aligning and having the same having the same focus interesting on that outspoken piece I'm interested to dig into (laughs) that a little bit (laughs) but you know I think for people what advice would you give to someone who is almost trying to become more confident with being outspoken and not shying away from being a thought leader? Because often being a thought leader requires you to be more outspoken and not sit on the fence and actually say what you think. For me, it's about being comfortable in yourself. And that's taken me a long time. And particularly over the last year, I've done a lot of heavy lifting personally and emotionally. And it's about finding what you're comfortable with. So one of the things I do talk about is I felt when I stepped down from my old company, I've had a massive sense of loss of identity so my identity was Lucy swears a lot wears black a face of particular business x I won't we don't even name it but everyone will know who it is and when that went it was like oh that was like a massive part of my identity that just disappeared overnight and I suppose I went through kind of a bit of a bereavement about that as well and it's taken me a long time to realize that it wasn't in your head you have the the company is a thing it's not it's the people who are running it 
So it's about believing in yourself and trusting yourself and trusting your gut and trusting your decisions. But also confidence is a really interesting one. If I ever do a PhD, my PhD will be about confidence, particularly in women. Just wanted to pick up on what you said about that identity piece, because I know that there's a lot of people that we do exec coaching with where they're maybe leaving a job or they're closing down a business or they're diversifying or they've lost their business or they've exited their business. And actually, there's a huge piece that you do get attached. Your identity gets attached to your role. And I think that's actually quite a big problem. It's a common problem. And sometimes it's because you let that role define who you are rather than seeing it as a role rather than you as a person. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I massively fell for that, Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's it's a good lesson for the listeners just to think about. It's around like making sure that you're watering the grass on who you are as a person and whether that's male, female, you as a person and that actually your business is a role just as being a mom is a role, being a friend, being a daughter, etc. Because that definitely is a big piece because you spend so much time in that work identity that sometimes you can confuse it as it's who you are, but yeah. it's not. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree with that. And I'm massively foul of that. But and I, it took me a long time to recognise that. And it was probably mentors and people from the outside looking in, making comments. And I'll be like, oh, right, OK, right. It's about me. Yeah. It's me. I'm the face of the business, not not the business isn't a thing yeah it's really hard though you have to Mm. do some you have to do some very deep reflective work so you did some interesting stuff you you did a a white collar boxing match (laughs) yeah tell the listeners a little bit about that how did you get roped into that if you want to work out your own identity then do a (laughs) boxing match that in the face of death you'll uh, yeah it was (laughs) So I was 50 last year and I wanted to do something special to celebrate. One of my aunties who, who I loved a bit, she did whitewater rafting when she was 50 and she went over the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And I was like, right, I want to do something a bit wacky. So I was humming and hawing about doing boxing because I've always been interested in the boxing. And we used to have a lad at work, actually, who was semi-pro and used to come in with his face smashed up all the time. So I've, I've asked about this white collar one, which is basically totally non-professional. People go and you do like military boot camp training for eight weeks and then they chuck you in a ring. So I was humming and hawing about doing it. And then I was at a lunch with Julian Leighton and, and for some reason I came up and he just went, just do it, just do it, Lucy, just do it. And he'd done a kickboxing one a few years before and he said he'd got completely obsessed with it. And he now had a kickboxing gym and he's basement and he teaches his kids and stuff so I came out and signed up for it hardest and best thing I've ever done in my life and the three lessons I've learned was patience the art of boxing and the art of business is patience mm-hmm. and you got to wait 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 and make so sales is a good example people always do hard sales if you wait and for the right moment to strike definitely the art of business so patience yeah, I also learned um, punching men in the face really hard makes them very, very angry. Let's <laughs> <laughs> try to play that business. <laughs> um, and focus was the other one, which I've talked about before. But yeah, I couldn't get a woman to fight me. Then we partnered up with Northumberland police boxing team. So I was fighting six foot five coppers for two months, which was brilliant. I loved it. It was really, really hard. But I learned, I probably learned more about business doing the boxing challenge than I have done from 20 years of business. And the main thing was about about focus, because you have when you're in the ring because of the noise and everything, you have to really... There's loads of techniques where you stare in people's eyes, but you have to cut out all your peripheral vision so you can focus on what you're doing. 
But um, yeah, it was bloody hard. But yeah, got fit with it as well. Fantastic. I mean, totally inspirational. <laughs> and it's interesting what you say about that whole learning outside of business. Yeah. And we often say that we've actually got a client where they put a budget every year to people just going off and doing yeah. different things. And they've actually made it non-specific. So they don't have to go and do a business course or training related to their job. It's a budget where they can go and do whatever they want. Yeah. And it's funny because we were talking about it the other day and he was sort of saying, you know, the amount of stuff that people have brought back when they put the expenses in. And I'm like, you're going to do a photography course or you're going to do like, it was like, I don't, but we learn so many yeah. things off the back of these people bring experiences back that are so applicable that actually had they gone and done a UX course or a customer services course, they wouldn't have got that exposure. So I think that's interesting about L- that. Lawyers are very good at doing this. They do tend to do a lot of pro bono work or they'll have charity days. And I think companies that do that, just going and working in a charity shop or working for a charity for a couple of days gives you, it's about perspective, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what we were talking about before, that you've got to step outside of the business to look in and get a different perspective on or you get coaching the purpose of coaching is to reflect on what you're doing and get different opinions and different perspectives on it. And I think doing something completely different. Yeah, I wasn't expecting the boxing. The the guy was brilliant. On the first lesson, he said, I'm going to teach you the art of boxing, not how to have a scrap down the big market on a Friday night. And he did. He he taught you about, it's not about going in and being scrappy do. I was quite angry when I started. At the Mm -hmm. time, I was really angry and it was was specific to get a lot of my anger go out which it did but I learned that that's not sport it's a discipline I mean that's why I love martial arts it's a discipline and you know I've never had a fight outside of the ring but in the ring it's a for me it's the art of the discipline and understanding like you say to have it's almost like negotiating with the person you're fighting with and and having the patience to watch when to count a shot and all of that stuff is like it is so useful to understand about yourself and how far you can push yourself as well focus as well Mm. so I was doing about nine hours of training every week at the peak I was doing 20 miles running 25 miles cycling and three gym sessions a week wow you took this serious Uh, yeah and then well when I do things I'll just throw yourself in. People always say, oh, how did you find the time to do that? It's like you make the time. If if you're focused on achieving the goal, I wanted to go in that ring and not necessarily win, but I wanted to just be proud of myself, which I was. And uh, I was so focused on that. It was was brilliant. Amazing. So what's next for you? I'd like to do more speaking. I'm doing a bit of speaking at the minute and I'm really enjoying it because that's kind of combining quite a few of my different skills. So I'm enjoying that. And <laughs> I shouldn't say this, but yeah, I did, a, I did a talk the other week and the host asked if people were frightened of AI or excited about it. And it was about 50-50, which is about right. The people who are frightened of it are the worried that the robots are going to come and kill us or that they're going to lose the job. Anyway, at the end of the talk, he did the same poll. And it was about 80% of people were terrified. <laughs> <laughs> so you just made them more worried. <laughs> wasn't my intention I think the frightening thing for me is the speed Mm -hmm. the speed it's progressing is unprecedented and it will be it will be mainstream my stance is that jobs will change and some will come and some will go. Cybersecurity didn't exist as a business 20 years ago. It's a massive multi-billion pound industry. And the other one I always use is, who would have thought that influencers would be the new way of marketing and advertising? So things change. For me, I'm definitely in the exciting camp. But going back to you talking about debate, it needs a lot of debate and the regulation and ethics is getting missed 
classically and there's a real issue with that that because the models are trained off what's put in the internet it's picking up all the biases and all the negativity that we as humans have put into the internet as a little wrap-up question because i'm conscious of time thinking about that terrifying statistic what would your advice be to people running a business currently who are maybe in that terrified phase, what would you say to them to go and do with AI or to where to start? Play with it. Our advice is just play with it like you did with ChatGPT. You can't break it. Big advice I gave specifically about generative AI models with ChatGPT is a good example. Um, they've just launched a new image so you'll be able to type in and get images out of it in the not-too-distant future. It's all, all of these things are getting trialled and beta-tested in America, so we're a few weeks behind them. But, yeah, just play with it. The best advice I can give is treat it like a highly intelligent intern or an assistant and have a dialogue. So if you ask a question about or how... What, what did you put in about characteristics? How, how or difficult how, how to have a difficult conversation. Mm-hmm. If it spits something out and it's not quite what you want to say that's not quite what I was looking for can you do that again and have a dialogue with it so best way to think about it is a it's a highly intelligent assistant that you're telling and having a conversation with because they're called chat bots so they're designed to have dialogues with interesting, interesting. but yeah well, just don't be frightened of and play with it play with it People think it is this magical dust that you just sprinkle on things, and it isn't. Some it's it, the the image generation AIs are just amazing. So food photography, for example, you can have a brilliantly looking Michelin food in a restaurant in like thirty seconds, which you wouldn't be able to do before. So I do get why people are like threatened by it, but if everyone's using the same tools it's all going to become mainstream again and the other mantra that I keep using is 95% of the IT literate world use Microsoft Word it doesn't make them Shakespeare <laughs> you, you know you've yeah. got to know what you're doing and it's it's only about what you, the creativity and the, the briefing that you give the AI but yeah just play with it and treat it like a colleague but as we talked about earlier what we do in terms of machine learning is only appropriate if you've got large amounts of data so there's different types of AI for different things you've got to know what problem are you trying to solve be curious be curious and be curious and I think that's a really great message around that whole piece of first of all the input determines the output yeah. doesn't it yeah and actually just being okay with just getting it wrong and yeah. trying it and um, the thing that I found it absolutely brilliant for is things like so my daughter's about to do King Lear at school Summarise King Lear in a couple of paragraphs and make it so exciting for a 10-year-old child that she wants to engage with it. Two seconds later, I got a little summary about it, texted it to my daughter, and she was like, ooh, that sounds cool. And it'd be ideal for kids with learning disabilities or ADHD, so you can ask it to read a bit of text, but for somebody with a specific condition. Top tips for parents there. (laughs) It's brilliant for kids. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We have loved thank it. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. It wasn't as painful as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> That's a relief. <laughs> so let's wrap up with some takeaways from Lucy's episode. The first thing is about AI not replacing jobs, but that it should be used as a tool to think about how you can make things more productive or more efficient and using AI as a way to support that. We then talked about the value of stabilising your focus and your purpose and going back continually to what is it that you are trying to do 
versus just jumping around or being pulled into different priorities without purpose. The final thing we looked at with Lucy was the fact that she felt like when she came out of her previous business that she'd lost her identity, that that identity was so closely tied to that business. And really just the reminder that your roles that you hold and the relationships that you have are simply roles and relationships. They do not define who you are at your core and making sure that you separate who you are and how you think about yourself from those roles and relationships. Thank you for listening to Misbehave. Follow us so you don't miss out on other episodes. 